Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much, Alan, for that very generous introduction. Dr. Cooper, thank you and for your service to our country. Uh, You can see from that uh, very uh, ancient CV that Alan uh, recounted uh, that I have many decades behind me. And there's a joke in the Middle East that I'm so old that I can remember when the Dead Sea was only sick. (laughs) You know, our children are our greatest critics, and we love them dearly, and they love us dearly. But I'll never forget when our daughter graduated from Yale in 2005. And we had one of these rare father-daughter talks, and she said, Dad, everyone talks about you as this great Middle East expert. How how long have you been at it? I said, well, sweetheart, over 32 years in the government, and I'm still doing it. And she looked at me. She said, you know, Dad, I read the newspapers. I don't think you've done a very good job. (laughs) (laughs) So with that uh, very honest statement, uh, let me uh, make a few remarks, and then I would like to open it up uh, to discussion and uh, Alan will help me uh, moderate the uh, question. Uh, I wrote wrote this book uh, for a purpose, not only to fulfill William Faulkner's uh, dictum that people write books just to say Kilroy was here, but I I wrote this book because I thought it was important, especially for the American readers, uh, to have the opportunity to gain the insights of a professional American diplomat who has served for decades in the Middle East and who also served on both the Arab side and the Israeli side and trying very hard to represent the national security and foreign policy interests and the values and interests of the United States of America in a very troubled part of the world. And I start the book out with a letter to the incoming president. This book came out in September of last year, so we didn't know who the president was going to be, so it's titled The Letter to the Incoming President. The publishers immediately took out, it was Dear Mr. Slash Madame President, because we didn't know if Hillary Clinton was going to be elected or not, but then by the time it got to the publishers, they took out the Madame, so it's, you know, Dear Mr. President. Uh, That first opening part of the book really summarizes uh, my thoughts uh, which really I tried to give the new president of the United States insights from a seasoned hand on what the pitfalls are and what the potentials are for America to pursue its national security interests and foreign policy interests in the broader Middle East. And when I talk about the Middle East, I'm talking about from the Maghreb, North Africa, all the way through the Levant, the Middle East, the Persian Gulf, into South Asia, especially Pakistan, Afghanistan, and and even beyond what we call the Muslim world. And the first thing we should understand about the Muslim world is that we could call it the Muslim world, but it is not a monolith. It's a very complex, differentiated part of the world. You have to deal with each country on its own merits. Syria is different than Egypt. Uh, Jordan is different than Saudi Arabia. Uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, uh, Morocco, the, each country uh, is, has its different uh, factors that policymakers have to take into consideration. So why we can generalize and talk about the Arab and the Muslim world, uh, we have to be careful to know that differentiation is a very wise departure point for American foreign policy. Uh, in the book, I open up with a chapter called the Meridian House Speech, 
And the reason I did that is in 1992, I gave this speech at Meridian House, which is a policy institute in Washington. And the reason I gave that speech, I was Assistant Secretary of State for the, for the Near East, and I was beginning to get very troubled about what I saw were schools of thought in academia, in policy uh, centers about who the new enemy was going to be after the collapse of the Soviet Union. You remember 1992, the Soviet Union had collapsed, communism was defeated, and uh, Fukuyama came out with his book, The End of History, that you know history now is going to be bland and dull, uh, the world is going to become liberal democracies. Didn't happen that way. Um, and Sam Huntington started to come out with his articles, which later was a book, shortly after I gave this speech on the clash of civilizations. And I was troubled by these two theses that were coming up that, on the one hand, the ideological struggles are over, Fukuyama. On the other hand, uh, Huntington, that we are predestined to cultural clashes, uh, Christianity against Islam, uh, Judaism and Christianity is against Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. And one thing I learned at Georgetown, you know, Georgetown is the oldest Jesuit university in the world, and the Jesuits are very stern teachers, but one professor teaching me political philosophy taught me the fallacy of composition. Now, that probably means nothing to the large majority of this audience, but the fallacy of composition is that if you're dealing with a subject and that subject is this long in a comprehensive sense and you just concentrate and focus on one aspect and you build a theory on one extreme or end of that reality, you're going to come up with false policy guidance. Every society, every civilization most countries have extremist fringe elements in it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those societies are being driven by the extremist fringes alone. So the first thing I did was to say that with the collapse of communism and our victory over communism and over fascism, that the next enemy was not going to be another great culture like Islam, uh, or any other culture in the world or civilization, but that the next enemy that we're going to see after the collapse, uh, uh, next ism that we are going to have to struggle against is extremism and terrorism. This is 1992. 1993, we had the first bombing of the World Trade Center. 9-11, we had the, the most serious attack on our homeland uh, since the British invaded in 1814. So in retrospect, I think the basic thrust of that speech was correct. But beyond that, I said, in terms of dealing with the Arab world, and my mandate was just the Arab world sitting at where I was as Assistant Secretary for the Near East, I said, what the United States must do in order to counter the forces of extremism, Islamic radicalism, uh, is and terrorism is basically to adopt a dual track approach with an added component to it, a third track. First, uh, we should be driven by conflict resolution in the Middle East, especially the United States must do everything within its power to influence a successful outcome of the Arab-Israeli conflict. It is the central political issue in the Arab world and largely in the Muslim world. The issue of Palestine, the issue of Israeli-Arab peace is the central political issue. And extremists exploit this issue for their own political ends. Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, and his henchman Zawahiri, they make it very clear that the near enemy is the Arab regimes that they consider to be impious and not sufficiently Muslim. And they even include Saudi Arabia in that, which is one of the most orthodox Muslim regimes in the world. 
and the far enemy, which is Israel, the United States, Europe, etc. They exploit the Arab-Israeli issue because it stirs the passions of the people in the region like no other single issue can. And you will see crowds and demonstrators from Malaysia, Indonesia. Uh, By the way, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country by population in the world. And to understand the Muslim world, you have to understand that uh, 80% of the Muslims of the world live outside of the Arab world. So that when we talk about Islam, we have to understand how differentiated our policies have to be because it's not a monolith. Again, it's a mosaic. So I said that American foreign policy should be really structured on a dual-track approach. First, resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict and other conflicts in the region, and I included in that Kashmir between India and Pakistan. Kashmir remains a flashpoint today for a war that can bring two nuclear weapon states, India and Pakistan, to war. India and Pakistan have gone to war three times since their independence in 1947. There's nothing that can guarantee that they will not go to war again. So conflict resolution is a key priority for American foreign policy in the broader Middle East. The second is the dual track of promoting political and economic reforms, because this is, again, Uh, if the Arab-Israeli conflict and other conflicts are a cause that are exploited by extremists, the poverty, the lack of development, uh, the lack of political expression uh, in these countries uh, is also a point that the extremists uh, exploit for their own ends. And therefore, what I suggested is that the United States should be very active but sensitive to the cultures and the different countries we're dealing with in promoting economic and social reforms and political reforms, but not not to promote democracy as if we're going to parachute in a a Jeffersonian model of democracy onto the sands of Arabia. It simply won't take. It simply won't take. What we must do is help these countries build the building blocks of democracy, the institutions that promote democracy, and it is a generational challenge from the ground up. For example, and I said this in a speech in 92, Saudi Arabia, which is one of the most autocratic monarchies in the uh, uh, Middle East, uh, they have what they call a majlis ashura, which is a council, advisory council of elders, It is appointed by the king. In 92, I suggested that the king of Saudi Arabia should make this council broader in representation with a view toward making it elective, but build on what they have. And King Abdullah, then crown prince, and now King Abdullah, has actually started doing that. It's taken many years, but that's exactly what he's doing. But I give you this example is that we should be promoting democracy, not by overthrowing regimes by military force and trying to impose democracy from top down. It's just too costly, as the war in Iraq has shown, in terms of American blood and treasure and in terms of of, uh, the, uh, the casualties of the indigenous population. There are other ways of promoting democracy. The military option should always be the very last option our country should adopt. So I feel that today this, if you will, policy guidance is as valid as it was in 92. And it has been adopted by both Democratic and Republican administrations, but we've talked to talk and we really haven't often walked the walk on these uh, policy lines. And we, we do so really at our peril. Now, Let me talk first on the Arab-Israeli conflict and the prospects for a solution. Uh, We've been through a lot, but a lot has been negotiated. And let me start out with a more positive note, because the situation is not too bright today. But let me start out on a positive note. 
in all my years of negotiations between Arabs and Israelis, a great deal has actually been accomplished at the negotiating tables. But the outcome has been terribly insufficient and partial. In the Israeli-Palestinian talks, years and Republican and Democratic administrations have been successful in bringing the parties in the private negotiations closer together on the key issues of a final status settlement. But those issues are incredibly difficult to bring to closure. And we're talking about the border, the territorial aspects of the settlement, the Israeli settlements, which are part of the border issue. Where will the Israeli settlements go? How will they be consolidated? What settlements will have to be dismantled? And actually, at the Baker Institute, we are working on a very interesting project that I hope in the next two months to be able to give to the Obama administration and to the Netanyahu's government and to Abu Mazen, which is a computational analysis and narrative of a Palestinian team that we brought together with an Israeli team to analyze the settlements and the territorial issue with possible land swaps where if there is ever a point where our administration can bring the parties together for a final settlement, we can at least give this to the George Mitchells of the world, the president's special emissary to the Arab-Israeli talks, uh, to the Middle East, and say, look, here's where in an academic exercise we brought the parties closer together on this critical and sensitive issue of Israeli settlements and territory and land swaps, but here's where major problems are. This is where you're going to face the roadblocks. So be aware. Go into this with your eyes open. So hopefully in the next two months, it's been a very difficult uh, thing to put together, but we're going to come out with this recommendation uh, to the uh, parties. Uh, The issue of Jerusalem. Uh, is replete with religious, political, uh, and security uh, issues. But again, a great deal of discussion has gone into that, and the general parameters of a settlement on Jerusalem are broadly have been broadly discussed by the parties, and it is not as impossible as it may seem. We don't have time to go into this tonight, but I'd be happy to discuss it. The issue of Palestinian refugees, it is generally recognized now that the Palestinians need to uh, reiterate the right of return, but that they know full well that there cannot be a right of return where Palestinian refugees uh, who lost their homes from 1948-1967 can return to the state of Israel. It will be the destruction of the state of Israel as a Jewish state. So... Compromise solutions have been uh, negotiated, uh, have been put on the negotiating table, and the general parameters are known that basically it's going to be symbolic return with major international compensation, resettlement, and relocation, et cetera. Uh, Security arrangements already are being built uh, up between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and a lot of progress has been made actually in the last uh, 10 years on security uh, arrangements. Uh, so some of the basic final status issues between uh, Israel and, and a Palestinian state uh, have been extensively negotiated. The point I'm making is that the parties are not going to start from ground zero. Uh, they can build on the legacy of what has been done since 1991. I point to 1991 because that was the Madrid Peace Conference. I was very actively involved in that. That was President George Herbert Walker Bush's administration and Secretary Baker. They brought together, I think brilliantly, for the first time in the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict since 1948, we were able to bring the Israelis and their immediate Arab neighbors together at the same table in direct face-to-face negotiations. That's the great achievement of Madrid. It's something that Israel had been asking for for 40 years. They wanted to negotiate it directly, not through the UN, not through intermediaries. And we accomplished that. And I I write a lot about that in my book because Madrid was actually an outcome of what we did in Damascus with a very powerful Arab dictator, Hafez al-Assad, when I was ambassador to Syria, 
we got him to agree for the first time to negotiate directly in face-to-face negotiations and talks with Israel, a position that he avoided for decades. When I first got to Damascus in 1988, he would not use the word Israel. He would call it the Zionist entity. By the time we left, he was not only calling it Israel, he had agreed to face-to-face negotiations, but we were discussing the differences between Shas and Likud and labor. And I mean, there was an evolution under American, if you will, adult supervision, in which we got this very powerful Arab leader to agree to go to the Madrid Peace Conference. And before Secretary Baker went to Jerusalem to meet with Yitzhak Shamir, the then Prime Minister of Israel, and and those of you who follow this, you know that Yitzhak Shamir was no softy. He was one of the most rigid, Likud Prime Ministers of Israel. He was a hardliner. But when we came to Jerusalem and said, we've got your neighbor to the north who poses a very real security threat to Israel to agree to negotiate with you directly, Shamir was absolutely, absolutely surprised. And the first thing he said to, uh, to, to Baker was, what did you give him? <laughs> and Baker said, nothing but the President of the United States' word. And you know what that word was? That word was that I, the President of the United States, will guarantee that if you go into direct negotiations with Israel, those negotiations will be based on the principal position of land for peace according to the two key United Nations Security Resolutions 242 and 338. I, George Herbert Walker Bush, give you my word. And at the end of the day, this worked. Now again, you got to remember, this was in the background of Desert Storm. We had just repelled Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. We were standing high. We were powerful. And we had influence. And so uh, I remember being called by the foreign minister of Syria. Waited six and a half weeks to get the response from President Assad to President Bush's letter on this deal. And Baker was on the phone. Where's the response? Where's the president wants to know where the response is? And I was negotiating with the Syrians on the letter. So I was getting it from both ends. And uh, I, was, uh, I lost all my hair in Damascus. <laughs> and finally, when, when the foreign minister called me at 10.30 at night, I thought it was another hostage release. I was very happy because the U.S. hostages from Beirut usually release late at night. And so I thought, oh, hostage release. He gave me this letter. And I had this in the book. <laughs> it was a sealed letter to President, you know, His Excellency President George Herbert Walker Bush. And uh, the foreign minister said, here's a copy of what's in that uh, envelope. I want you to read it. And I said, well, Mr. Foreign Minister, my opinion is not important. The opinion of my Secretary of State and my President is important, not mine. The reaction said, no, the President wants you to read it and give, you, give us your informal reaction. So I read the letter. It's about three pages. Then I reread it. And then I was starting to reread it a third time. The foreign minister got quite annoyed. He said, what's taking you so long? And I said, you want to know the truth? He said, yes. I said, I'm looking for the Syrian loophole. He said, then he looked at me, he smiled. He says, have you found it? (laughs) Which made me very nervous because I had not found a loophole. And I was ecstatic, but I had to keep a straight face. Uh, But I was ecstatic. And I went to the embassy, called uh, Secretary Baker and on our secure phone, and I said, you're getting on a telegram now, the response to President Bush's letter. He said, what's it? What is it? I said, it's an unqualified yes to direct negotiations with Israel. So Baker being Baker and a lawyer said, are you sure? <laughs> I said, Mr. Secretary, I'm sure. So Baker goes out in front of the cameras. He was having a meeting with the then the last foreign minister of the Soviet Union, Alexander Besmertnik. And uh, he said, before we talk about my talks with the Soviet foreign minister, I've just got a call from our ambassador to Syria. According to our ambassador to Syria, (laughs) 
President Assad has agreed. So I called him back later. I said, you really had me hanging out there, didn't you? He said, you better believe it, <laughs> unless I saw it. But that was our breakthrough. And, and the reason I'm giving you this anecdote, I want to make a very important point. A lot of people say the United States has to pressure Israel, has to pressure the Arabs. No. The art of diplomacy is not pressure. The art of diplomacy is a president of the United States with a competent secretary of state standing tall and creating the policy framework, the diplomatic framework, where it becomes very hard for the parties to say no. That's not pressure. That's the art of diplomacy. And that's what we have to get back to. And that's what I hope Obama will do in this critical period we have in the next four uh, years ahead of us uh, in the Middle East. Now, another, uh, uh, also I think that with Bibi Netanyahu uh, uh, elected as Prime Minister of Israel, he has a very fragile coalition. But uh, having worked with Bibi Netanyahu, uh, I know that he's going to be very tempted to take the Israeli-Syrian route for negotiations. It's easier in one way. It doesn't involve Israeli settlements in the Judea, Samaria, the holy land of the biblical land of Israel. Uh, you're dealing with a state. You're not dealing with a bifurcated Palestinian leadership between Fatah and Hamas. So uh, Bibi may be very tempted to go the Israeli-Syrian uh, route, but it's not a zero-sum game. You can't go one front and ignore the other one. You've got to work them all at their own pace because it will not be acceptable. It will be very difficult for a president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, the son of the former one, to actually uh, sign an agreement that the Palestinian issue is not being resolved. So um, I think the appointment of George Mitchell is a wise appointment. He's the guy who brought the Good Friday Accords. He knows uh, to fruition. He knows uh, he's a superb negotiator. And uh, as long as he has the President of the United States and the Secretary of State's full backing, we may have a chance. And let me make one point here. In the history of Arab-Israeli negotiations, we've had a lot of failures, as my daughter reminded me. But we've had certain successes. And I can pinpoint those successes to a common factor when you've had a strong American foreign policy president and a strong Secretary of State who have given the negotiations, I'll, get, I'll use the word again, adult supervision, we have enhanced the prospects of success. Nixon and Kissinger in 73-74 after the Yom Kippur War, they brought together the disengagement agreements. The disengagement agreement between Israel and Syria is, is, has lasted to this day. The border between Israel and Syria is the most secure border Israel has had. Of course, Lebanon has been used as a proxy and the problems are in Lebanon. But they brought about the 74 disengagement accords. Strong foreign policy. Jimmy Carter, who brokered the Israeli-Egyptian accords. And he did that with a very strong Likud Prime Minister, Menachem Begin, but with a great charismatic leader of Egypt, Anwar Sadat. And Bush 41 and Baker, who did the Madrid Peace Conference, which remains to this day the umbrella for any future talks between the Arabs and Israelis. Let me make a point again on, on democracy promotion uh, because uh, this is an important element, especially from uh, W's administration to Obama's administration. There are going to be nuances and changes in it. But one point I want to make is democracy is not elections alone. We as Americans know what democracy is. We live it. It's the rule of law. It's an independent judiciary. It's pluralism equality before the law, all these things plus. It's not just elections. Elections elect dictators. Also, elections can elect the wrong people, like Hamas in the Palestinian territories. Uh, I'll give you an anecdote that's in the book. Uh, I was having a meeting with President Hafez al-Assad of Syria, this whole powerful dictator. He had, the week before the meeting, he had just been reelected for another six-year term by 99.44% of the vote. 
99. Think of how many American politicians would love to have that. And so I said, uh, in Arabic, I said, well, uh, Mr. President, Your Excellency, congratulations on this overwhelming electoral victory. He said, thank you very much, Ambassador. I said, may I ask you a question? This was toward the end of my tour, so I was a little more risque. Uh, I said, may I ask you a question? He said, yes, go right ahead. I said, do you know who the 0.56% are who did not vote for you? <laughs> and he laughed. The old man had a sense of humor, believe it or not. He laughed. He said, oh, Ambassador Jurgen, I have all their names. So the point I'm making here is elections alone are not democracy. So we need to move on uh, from that. Let me quickly, I know I'm probably, Alan, you'll tell me when my time is running out, but uh, another recommendation, uh, well, not a recommendation, but one, one of the major factors in this book is that what we have to understand that in the Muslim world, there's a seminal struggle underway between the forces of extremism, especially Islamic radicalism, and moderation. And the outcome of that struggle will impact on all of our lives also, as we saw in 9-11, because it's the Islamic radicals who attacked us on our homeland here. So we, as I underline in the book, we cannot decide that struggle for the Muslim people. They have to decide it themselves. But the United States, given our preeminent position, especially in the region, we can influence that struggle so that we can strengthen the moderates, help strengthen the moderates in the Muslim world, and help marginalize the Islamic radicals. And especially focus on those people, the youth, that are in between trying to decide which way they're going to go. And the population of the Muslim world, the demographic profile is very young, under 20. So if we have intelligent policies and much more effective public diplomacy, Alan mentioned that I, I chaired this bipartisan committee on public diplomacy, we're doing a terrible job, a terrible job in promoting American values and interests in the Muslim world. And uh, the book has, well, there are all sorts of recommendations on how we can do that, and people are focused on it. And I, I have to give credit to W's administration. Condi Rice and Karen Hughes put in a lot of organizational changes. And I think President Obama, by his speeches, shows that he really understands the power of the word, especially toward the Muslim world. And his trip to Turkey and his addressing the Islamic world, I think, was brilliant. We need that. But... This struggle, this struggle is the overarching struggle in which the war on terrorism is fought and all these other issues I mentioned are fought. So it's very important for us to understand the complexity of this struggle and to use all the instruments in our power, both soft power and hard power, to help marginalize the radicals and empower uh, the uh, moderates. Another major point in the book is, for God's sake, let us not ignore South Asia. Uh, the administration is making the right moves by appointing a special emissary, Dick Holbrook, uh, who I know very well, to Afghanistan and Pakistan. But look what we've done in South Asia. The real, if there is a war on terror, and I don't like these words, war on terror, war on drugs, war on poverty, because it connotes that it's like a military struggle, that one day we're going to win and we'll plant an American flag like at Iwo Jima. No, these are ongoing struggles. They're not war. They're, they're constant, continuing struggles. But in Afghanistan and Pakistan, that is where the real network of al-Qaeda remains. That's where the Taliban are coming back. In Pakistan, the Islamic radicals, this is the nub of Islamic radicalism, supported by other Islamic orthodox groups that are financing them. So we cannot take our eye off the ball of South Asia, as we have in, past, uh, in the past. Look at the history. I was head of the political section in Moscow when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. 
they were defeated in Afghanistan by the people we supported, the Mujahideen. We supported directly the Mujahideen in the Cold War. We armed, we financed the Islamic warriors to put so much heat on the Soviet military in Afghanistan that they were destroyed and had to uh, withdraw. It was the beginning of the end, a part of the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. But then what did we do? We declared victory and we left. And we subcontracted our policy in Afghanistan to the Pakistani intelligence services, which have very strong ties to the Islamist uh, radicals, and to the Saudis, who have a very strong Wahhabi school, orthodox, that finance radical madrasas and schools. Then we invaded Iraq. And Iraq took so much of our attention and our energies, and as I said before, our blood and treasure, that we ignored since 2003, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And now the Obama administration is faced with a resurgent Taliban in Afghanistan. And Al-Qaeda, unfortunately, is alive and well in the frontier regions of Pakistan and, and Afghanistan. So we must not turn our backs on this critical area of the, war, of the world in terms of our struggle against terrorism. And I think we've learned that lesson. And I think there's going to be a sustained focus on uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Now, Iraq. I was a member of the Iraq study group, and I think we are approaching an end game, thank God. But it's not guaranteed. Because one of the things we mentioned, one of our strongest recommendations in the Iraq study group report, which I regret, I regret was not fully embraced by the past administration, uh, because I think it would have helped President George W. Bush a great deal. It was the only bipartisan consensus on Iraq in our country. We had these very prominent, five prominent Democrats, five prominent Republicans put this together under the co-chairmanship of uh, Baker and, and Lee Hamilton. And that's history. But we did allow for an surge in that report. We did allow for an a surge. But we said the three pillars of our policy should be securing the country, national reconciliation between the Sunnis, the Shias, the Kurds, and other groups, and a new diplomatic offensive, which would galvanize under the leadership of the United States, the international community, with all of Iraq's neighbors, including Iran, Syria, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and others, to really help uh, the Iraqi government obtain these goals political reconciliation, national reconciliation, security, and governance. Um, where we've made progress, we've made a great deal of progress, but at the end of the day, when we begin to diminish our presence there, our military presence, that's when we're going to find out whether it will hold together. What's terribly important is that Iraq hold together as a nation state and not splinter into a Kurdish Shia Sunni, because then that will destabilize the whole Gulf region. And believe me, with the Kurdish issue, if Iraq splinters, the Turks will consider it a threat to their national security because of their Kurdish problem. The Syrians have a large Kurdish population. The Iranians have a large Kurdish population. Now let me jump quickly to Iran. How much time do I have? <laughs> Five minutes. Uh, Iran has really seized the headlines, uh, and its current president obviously uh, doesn't help, uh, to say the least. But I think it's very important for us to engage Iran in a strategic dialogue, in a tough-minded dialogue as it's important for us to engage Syria in a tough-minded dialogue. Diplomacy 
is about engaging your adversaries. You make peace with your enemies, you don't have to make peace with your friends. But when I advocate talking, I'm not an advocate of talk for the sake of talk and diplomatic photo ops. I'm saying that if we enter into a dialogue with Iran, because the stakes are so high with Iran, that it's incumbent upon us to engage in this strategic dialogue, because the end options are pretty brutal, including military force, and can really destabilize the region. So what I advocate, and as I do in the book, put everything on the table. Take one thing off the table in the beginning, and that's regime change. Tell the Iranian leadership, regime change is off. We are not going to dictate who the leaders of Iran are. That's for your people to decide. Because no country will negotiate in good faith with an interlocutor, especially the United States, if they think that one of our objectives is to overthrow the regime. Why should they go into a deal with us? But having said that, you put the issues on the table. Their quest for nuclear weapons capability, Israel, Arab-Israeli peace, Hamas, Hezbollah, human rights, Afghanistan. They have a major role in Afghanistan. Iraq, they have a major role in Iraq. You put it all on the table and say, here's the American agenda. Are you willing to deal with us seriously on all these issues? We're ready. But it's not just talk. It's going to mean changes in behavior. And you give them carrots and sticks. Now, one of the greatest sticks we have at the end of the day is the fact that if Iran does acquire a nuclear weapons capability, uh, let's not forget the concept of deterrence. It worked with the Soviet Union. It may or may not work with Iran. Some people say, oh, the Iranian leaders are crazy. They don't care. They'll press the button just to make the point. I don't buy off on that argument because what I know of the Iranian leadership is that these leaders have a very strong survival sense. They want to stay in power. They don't want to lose their position of power. But they're willing to send others into suicide bombings and support terrorism, yes. But they themselves in the ultimate showdown are not suicidal in terms of their wanting to remain in power. Also, Iran is not that strong a country as we sometimes make it out to be. It has a very bad economy. One of the world's largest producers of oil and gas is importing refined product and gasoline. What does that tell you? And it's subsidized. It is not a homogeneous population of Persians 52% of the country is Persian, 9% is Kurdish, 24% are Azeri Turks. They have an Arab population. Iran could splinter just like Iraq. And there's a very young population that is seeking reforms. And there are three schools of thought, if I can generalize, on the nuclear issue in Iran. Those who want to get the weapon today those who want to adopt the Japanese model, which is that you build under, Iran's a member of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and IEA, that you build up your nuclear capabilities, your civilian capabilities, all the way up to the threshold, whereby it wouldn't be too difficult to cross that threshold if you had to and begin a nuclear weapons program. That's a Japanese model. That's exactly where the Japanese are. In other words, the Japanese can... I call it the screwdriver. They can sort of turn various screws at the end of the day and become a nuclear weapons power in a period of a year or whatever. That's the second school in Iran on the nuclear issue. And the third school are the liberals who say we're the world's, one of the world's leading natural gas and oil producers. We don't need nuclear cap energy capabilities. We need to globalize and get foreign direct investment. Our economy is broken. We can play on this. But what I'm suggesting here is that I think Obama should go into a very tough 
dialogue with the Iranians to determine where they are, where they're not, and if there is any common ground. So let me end, end with that because I think I've gone over my time. There's much more we can uh, talk about. Um, you know, the Middle East is a, uh, it's a fascinating uh, part of the world uh, with uh, all its complexities. Uh, you, you have to be very uh, deft in dealing with your interlocutors in that part of the world. I'll close with one anecdote. When Yasser Arafat came to Washington in 1993 for the signing of the Oslo Accords between Rabin, Shimon Peres, Bill Clinton, Arafat, of course, and Rabin, uh, I got a call from the Clinton White House saying the president wants you to be the uh, senior official who meets Arafat at Andrews Air Force Base. Now, you've got to remember, this is the first time Arafat is being received officially in the United States of America. I, as Assistant Secretary of State before, had to sign waivers every time they came to the UN because they were part of a terrorist organization called the PLO. So I had signed these waivers that they could get into New York to go to the UN. All of a sudden, here we are. I'm out there at the airport, Andrews Air Force Base, and I had a long line of Arab ambassadors and the press and the television cameras. And this was the big signing event, and you know, as you remember, the South Lawn of the White House. <laughs> and so I called in one of my, the day before, I called in one of my uh, deputy assistant secretaries, a fellow by the name of Dan Kurtz, who was ambassador to uh, Egypt and Israel, and a very strict Orthodox Jew, very conservative. I said, Dan, come in, close the door. He said, what's up, boss? I said, I want you to come and try to kiss me. And he looked at me and he said, are you all right? And I said, I'm fine. I said, the White House wants me to go out to Andrews Air Force Base. You know what Arafat's going to do. He's going to come down those stairs and he's going to embrace me and give me the Arab hug and kiss. I said, the first photo of Arafat being received on American soil cannot be a hug. It has to be a handshake. So we're going to work out a routine and so we worked out a Bolshoi ballet routine <laughs> in which my, I have this, in which Arafat, and, and it really, it happened exactly that way. Arafat came down, and he saw me, and he started going like this. And my left hand came up on his, his shoulder, and my right hand went out, and he couldn't embrace me. And that was it. And the Washington Post had this photo the next day, and you know what the title was? Avoiding a hug for peace, <laughs> which proves to you there are no secrets in Washington. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Ambassador. I know that we have many questions. I'm going to ask those who do have questions, please, to form your question in the form of a question and not in the form of an answer or a speech so that all of us can have a chance to speak with the ambassador. We have uh, people with uh, uh, microphones. Uh, let's start in the back with uh, Frank Risch, please. Uh, thank you for those terrific remarks. And uh, it, it occurs to me that uh, the question that I would put to you has to do with the role of diplomacy. And I'd ask about that role really in two respects, in two dimensions. One, the role of, dis of diplomacy in connection with uh, radical Islam and uh, terrorism, which, unlike the diplomacy that we typically think of, doesn't deal with a state, with an address. Um, even PLO and under Arafat had a kind of an address, and you knew how to, to deal with them. Uh, the Taliban, al-Qaeda, doesn't seem to lend itself to, to, to that. And then the role of uh, diplomacy in connection with Iran. You talked about the need for us to speak, to, speak with Iran and, and have tough discussions. Um, th there's a fear, uh, or a concern at least, that I wish you would address about the extent to which that allows Iran to buy additional time to, uh, to, to, to build their, uh, their nuclear threat, that uh, they will use that opportunity to, to, to sort of string out discussions and, and allow that uh, to happen and, and, and sort of forestall you know, any uh, attack or other uh, uh, means that, uh, that, that some might have. Good question. Well, first, I think if we do engage uh, with Iran along the lines I discussed, we should make clear that there's a timeline to those discussions. They're not open-ended. 
that's very important. Uh, so that they don't do exactly what you suggested, is play us for time uh, while they develop a nuclear weapons capability. Uh, that's the first point. Uh, secondly, uh, you're right, uh, diplomacy in this uh, period, this new period, is much more complex than state-to-state -state relations. A lot of these conflicts that we're, we're dealing with in the region are intrastate, or this ideological struggle I mentioned with uh, groups that do not have a specific address that you can deal with. Uh, but it makes our ability to conduct diplomacy effectively more difficult. And one thing we have to get back to is building up our diplomatic resources and national security resources, uh, whereby we have many more uh, American diplomats, uh, intelligence officers, uh, military uh, personnel who understand the languages and the culture of the regions we're dealing with. Now, this may seem to you very basic, but we've lost the beat on this in a terrible way. Uh, when we were doing this Public Diplomacy Commission, I asked my team to look into the uh, State Department's language competencies of the uh, Muslim world. And uh, being an Arabic speaker myself, uh, I knew how hard it was to learn language, but still I asked, where are we now? This is 2003. And so I got the statistics, and the first statistic I got is that we have 279 Arabic speakers that speak the language proficiently. I said, go back. That sounds a little inflated to me, uh, even though it's a small number. Uh, and indeed, it was inflated. And then I asked the question, I said, how many Arabic speakers do we have? in the State Department, that if the President or the Secretary of State or an ambassador in the field needed to have an American diplomat go on Al Jazeera, the famous satellite network in the Arab world, which is very powerful, because it reaches 35 million people. Uh, how many Arabs do we have that the President or the Secretary of State could call on that could debate and speak fluently in Arabic to rebut some of the falsehoods being said about our policy. Do you have any idea? And really, basically four. Uh, and I use this. I use this in front of Congress. I use it in the press. And I just lifted my hand to show that you know, Congress has to provide much more budgetary support. Uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton are going to make another big pitch for this. Uh, this, this is critical. Because if, if we don't have that expertise in our national security services, we're really not going to know what's really happening out there, and we're not going to be able to dialogue and engage and that is the first step in good foreign policy formulation. You have to get the facts. You have to get the human assessments. And you have to be able to engage in their languages. So this is a compelling need. We also, the CIA has to build up its human intelligence. We're dependent too much on you know, technology and satellites and all this stuff, which is useful, obviously. But at the end of the day, they do not tell you what the intentions are of the bad guys. So we have a lot of building to do, uh, and even nation building. Uh, you know, we put on our overextended military the task of nation building. They're not, they're not trained. They're trained to win wars and battles. And I remember in Baghdad, a, a general, top general there told us, he said, we have to pick up the trash. That's not the role of the US military. But the point he was making is that we need to get the Iraqis to build their social services and government services so the trash is picked up, electricity is running, water is running, so that the government begins to expand its powers and the radicals don't take over. It's the same thing in Afghanistan. A general told me, uh, General Eikenberry, he said, where the roads end, the Taliban begins. 
And what he meant by that is where the roads end, where schools, health clinics, governance, where the roads end, the Taliban begins. But we can't put this only on our military. We have to build up our US assistance agencies, civilian construction corps. We have to build new models to face these new challenges. Ambassador, I'm sure that um, many people will be frustrated, but due to time constraints, we'll have one more question. I'm hoping that your insightful and comprehensive comments have answered most of the questions. <laughs> okay. But uh, let's, uh, let's take uh, the gentleman in the, in the back with his hand up. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, uh, again, I mentioned this in my book that uh, one of the scariest scenarios I see is that if the threats to some of our closest friends and allies comes not from without, like Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, or Iran invading or taking military action against some Gulf states because of territorial disputes with Saudi Arabia, that we can deal with because of our military might. We have the fifth fleet in the Persian Gulf uh, based in Bahrain. We, it's been there since 1949. We successfully repelled Saddam from Kuwait in, in obviously, into, in, uh, in Desert Storm. But the real threat, the real dangerous threat, is how about if the threat comes from within? And one of these regimes is overthrown by the Islamic radicals. Are we going to send U.S. forces into Saudi Arabia to overthrow that regime? That's a hell of a task. And Al-Qaeda has attacked Saudi Arabia in the last, over the last five years. There's been a shift in tactics. The Faustian bargain that was made is Saudi money would be going to these madrasas and to various radical groups, not through the government, but through charities, which Saudi citizens would be paying, and it was condoned by the government. But then all of a sudden, and, and, and the Faustian deal was that, okay, you start doing that and we'll keep away from attacking the Saudi regime. But then we've seen over the last five, six years that Al-Qaeda has mounted operations against the Saudi regime. Uh, oil fields. And the Saudis have now built up their anti-terrorism forces and they've taken very serious action. They are now very effective in countering the terrorists. But here are the fault lines in Saudi society. A broken education system. Uh, they, they don't produce scientists, engineers, social scientists, uh, business majors in sufficient quantities to have a young Saudi progress and then make a real contribution to his or her society. Uh, the education system is broken. There are a lot of Saudis who study religion and universities, of course. I have nothing against the study of religion, but when you have a disproportionate people and you don't have enough studying disciplines in which you can make a contribution to the economy and the political structure of your society, there's a question there. So they're taking steps now to build up their education system, but it's long in coming. You have a very youthful population, increasing unemployment, and a middle class that is not part of the six, the numbers of six to 9,000 princes, royal princes. Uh, the elite that has a disproportionate share of the incredible oil revenue of the state of Saudi Arabia. Uh, so you have these tensions between a more professional middle class, a burgeoning youthful population, a broken educational system. And these are the tasks. This is what I call the threat from within. And even the issue of political participation. As I mentioned, the Majlis Ashura, they have to move on that. And, and King Abdullah, I think, is a good king. He's, he's progressive in, his, in, in the Saudi standards. He's very progressive, and he's trying to do something. But, you know, he's 80 years old. Uh, so I don't know. The, uh, the clock is ticking there. And it's a race against, you know, from modernity to 
some of these old uh, things which could destabilize that regime. And that would be disastrous. <laughs> For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.